The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, friends. I'm your host, Chris Thrill. I'm a former Royal Marines commando. I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. I want to talk to you about people. What happens when you put ambitious people under acute stress? I would really hope that most of you are actually too sensible for that. thousand vertical meters of blocks of ice the size of this room. All of them moving, just a little, every day. And in between those blocks are the crevasses. You're going to have to move forward from that success and seek out, literally, new frontiers. The Mazeno Ridge, it had never been climbed. It's also not the right summit. Two of our team dig themselves a cave under the rock. What interests me is the things that went wrong have the vision to set ourselves the really ambitious goals and then the courage to simply get out there and try and make it happen. So, Kathy, how are you? Ah, good, good. So, tell, um, I mean, I look very quickly at, at a little bit of your story, but... I haven't actually looked at the podcast, so kind of tell me what what's the podcast about? Well, um, it's like this: I began watching the Joe Rogan podcast about two years ago now, mm-hmm. and I really loved this informal style. Um, the fact that guests got to talk about all the subjects which fascinate me none of which you will hear on, on our BBC, you know. Um, I particularly like the fact that he got to speak to all of his heroes and 
Mm-hmm. Uh, hence, hence our conversation today. Um, and what else am I saying? Um, and yeah, and so I thought, wow, what a cool thing if that could be your job. And I'm a great believer, and I'm sure you 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 must be the same. In, in you know, if you want your dreams to come true, you have to take action. So one day I just started recording some of my stories from all around the world, just in into my my web camera, mm-hmm. and um, I think I, was, I had a bit of luck. At the same time, I I got invited on a couple of other quite popular podcasts um, to tell my Hong Kong. Um, mental health story and off the back of that I got a lot of subscribers or I got more subscribers mm-hmm. and um, and yeah and it's just starting to take off um, get a lot of um, young men who see me in the military or see my military career that are kind of interested in that angle mm-hmm. um, I'm always the first to point out I'm a pacifist I I don't agree with war and uh, and I wish we didn't have to have a mi- military, but that's just my kind of uh, get out of jail card, I suppose you'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, enough about me. Uh, I, I'm, I'm in awe, Cathy. I mean, I really am. I'm trying to look at you in the camera, but your picture's here. So it, it, that's why. For anyone watching as well, if you wonder why my eyes go like this, it's it's like I want to look at you here, but uh, I'm aware you're there. Um, but so, I mean, do you get sick of people saying to you that Everest is, it's like they know everything about it, it's their dream? Um, do you get fed up talking about Everest when, Obviously, there's many other peaks that you've climbed, uh, many of uh, or some of which I'm sure were. Well, I know one of which was was even more difficult. Um. Um, honestly, yes, I do, and uh, it's partly because I don't think of Everest that way. So I try and you know remind myself that people see the world in very different ways, and one of the things we're learning is our way is not the only way. And that's part of why the world is interesting. Other people take the same experience and and go somewhere very different with it. But I do think that Everest has kind of been fetishized uh, a bit in a way that's odd. And that feeds into our current, you know, these long queues of commercial clients, Mm. which we see increasingly every year. And now that everyone's got cameras everywhere, there will always be a viral photograph of the queue on the summit ridge of Everest, followed by various breast-beating articles about this phenomenon. But it does relate to something slightly curious, which is the desire of people to kind of have done something that they see as amazing while doing it in the easiest way possible. So it's like, yeah, me and Edmund Hillary, except that I had a guide and a fixed line from base camp to the summit. I never actually climbed a mountain before, and I'll never climb a mountain again. But, you know, I really fancy saying that I I conquered Everest. I'm a climber. I ended up on Everest because I wanted to go to the Himalaya. And it was my first opportunity. And it wasn't my choice that the mountain in the Himalaya that the team was going to was Everest. I don't particularly care about Everest. 
So, I mean, obviously it's cool to have been on the highest mountain in the world and it's cool to have reached the top. But that's not why I climb. And no, I don't consider it in any sense some crowning achievement of anything. But I'm also aware that it's a little bit uh, coy to be saying this because I did manage to launch an entirely successful career off the back of having climbed Everest. And that career then allowed me to go off and climb a whole lot of other mountains, which are actually more interesting or as interesting, and a whole lot of other adventures, which aren't even about mountains, and I don't care. They're about things that matter to me. So, you know, I'm part of the Everest industry while feeling thoroughly conflicted about that fact. So there you go. Life's complicated. Yeah. And, I mean, I've been seeing your story well, it's ninety six is is the infamous year, right? And again, I I, I don't even like to bring that up because you must be like done to death on that. But I, I guess it was one of also- the things interesting, like oh, the infamous year. But there were a fraction of people on Everest in ninety six that are on Everest now. Mm-hmm. So when people read, say, John Cracker's book, oh, ooh, so many climbers, that's like ten percent of what we have in 2020. You know, the the, the different teams getting muddled up, that's a fraction of what happens now. Uh, In terms of the number of people actually being killed on the mountain in a single moment, I don't know if 96 still still holds the record. But um, one of the things, uh, just um, hang on. Okay, don't worry. Okay. Hey, we like um, we like guests. That's fine. No, that that that's fine. Just just checking. We don't get interrupted. Uh, one of the things that, um, so yes, ninety six isn't terribly infamous compared to what's happened in the quarter of a century since then, and in fact, one of the really odd outcomes. You read the books about 96 and you think it would be a lesson against commercial guiding on Everest. All it did was make a whole lot of people aware that being commercially guided on Everest was a possibility. So the book and the situation didn't act as a warning. It acted as an invitation. (laughs) So for people that are watching us and listening and thinking, what are these these guys going on about it? There was a. It's referred to as the killer storm that came down. Kathy was on her way to the summit, um, destined to be the first South African team to climb Everest. Feel free to jump in here, Kathy. Um, and this killer storm came in, and and it really um, it tore the climbing parties to bits. And there were several deaths. Uh, was it thirteen or or, or ten? 10 it was yeah 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 okay okay let's let's bring this down a little bit back to the, the facts as against the myth okay. uh the real thing about that storm was people survived i don't i don't know if that's the worst tragedy on everest ever but it's certainly not the worst in the high himalaya what was unusual about that storm was firstly that a famous journalist survived when everybody dies Nobody gets to write the dramatic bestseller story afterwards. Yeah. So it's actually people surviving and getting to come home and share the story that helps to make a story go huge, blow up. The second big thing was it was the first year, basically, of the modern media age. 
It was the first year the teams were running websites from Basecamp. And we forget that. It's all so integrated into our modern lives. But this happened in your and my lifetimes. Mm. 96 was the first time that media had almost immediate live communication with teams on Everest. So before, something went terribly wrong and you got home a couple of weeks later and started to tell the story beforehand. 96 was the first year we could live it in real time. So it was the first year that a dramatic mountaineering event went viral in modern media. Wow. Not just about the mountain, it's about a moment in technology, a moment in a changing media environment. So five people were killed on the south side. Three people died on the north side, although it wasn't directly related to the storm. The storm itself was bad, but no, it was in no sense the most dramatic storm that has ever been in the Himalaya or killer this, that, or the other. A lot of this is is media puff-up around the whole thing. So in my opinion, I will say... My experience has been the closer people were to the actual events, the less likely they are to say that they know exactly what happened. A bit like I would imagine being in war. If you're in the middle of it, you don't know what the fuck is going on. You're just deeply confused with your head down trying to survive. It's somehow the experts a million miles away who go like, oh, well, clearly it was A, B, and C, and obviously you should have done X, Y, and Z, and why didn't you? The answer was like, because we didn't know what the fuck was going on. We were in the fog of, I've heard people use the phrase of in the fog of war. Well, you get the same thing on a mountain, in the fog of storm and confusion. Um, So my assessment is, frankly, a couple of teams made a couple of mistakes. And normally you'd get away with those mistakes if the weather was okay. But the weather wasn't. And therefore, they made fairly minor mistakes. But in a moment where a set of circumstances just turned the situation into a perfect storm and into this dramatic story of death and survival and bad choices and difficult choices. Um, And yes, we weren't actually going to the summit. We were the team that decided we were at the top camp. Mm. Um, But we knew the weather was unstable. Not that we thought there was going to be a killer storm or a huge big storm, More that we knew we weren't desperately experienced, so we were being very careful. So based on unstable weather the day before, we decided to wait for 24 hours and see if the weather stabilized before we attempted to get to the summit. And the other three teams went because they felt they had the experience to do so. And they got caught in a storm on the way back down. Wow. And and that's... I guess it's uh, one of every climber's worst nightmares, isn't it? Is the, is the not? No, no, it isn't. <laughs> Go on, keep exposing. Sorry, the, I'm the, sorry, the... I, I, I may be entirely the wrong guest for you because I no, 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 we 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 sorry. like the truth. I don't think you should go mountaineering if you sit at home and contemplate your worst nightmares. We go to into the mountains in the same way that I would imagine you go into a conflict zone with a thoroughly level-headed risk assessment, a hopefully a real depth of training 
in skills, in risk assessment, in using the tools you have available to you. Uh, hopefully with a carefully thought out um, plan of what you intend to do, both of things go well and how you're going to uh, evacuate if things go wrong. And then a bunch of people who you consider to be level-headed and pragmatic in stressful situations. So nobody sits at home contemplating uh, terrible outcomes on mountains. And weather isn't like all or nothing. It isn't either blue skies and sunshine or killer storms. It's a long spectrum of decreasing or increasingly poor weather conditions. And so you're managing that situation all the way through, through to being pinned down in really crappy weather. Now, of course, my experience is I was pinned down in camp. And that's, again, maybe, maybe you've got some experience of this, how you can be in a situation of danger and be thoroughly bored because there's not a lot you can do about it other than keep your head down. We're not actually moving through the storm the way those other teams were. We weren't, you know, clawing meter by meter to try and get to a place of safety. So obviously, if I'd had that experience, it would have been different and I guess a lot more traumatic. My experience was being sat in a tent, fully dressed, because, of course, the fear is the tent will tear and you don't want to be thrown into the storm in your thermal underwear and your socks. You'd better be fully dressed. So you're sitting there through the night, fully dressed, bored, because it's confusing and it might turn out to be risky in a minute, but right now it isn't. Right now you're just tired and sleepy and on your 17th cup of coffee and wondering when this is going to end <laughs> and kind of peripherally aware that other people, strangers, are in trouble out there somewhere. But the radio communications are so limited and so crappy mm. that, that it's not playing out in real time. It's not like people sitting now on their mobiles, on Twitter, watching some kind of, you know, terrorist situation unfold. It's not like that at all. Like every couple of hours, you take a few minutes to talk to your base camp. You go like, we don't know what the hell's going on either. Um, we've heard some very conflicting reports from different teams who are battling to communicate with their people who may be safe or might not be safe. We're not sure. So a lot of those are just kind of like, Meh. okay, we, we don't know what's going on. Keep our heads down and wait for the sun to rise, wait for conditions to improve, and then we'll sort of stick our heads out and try and understand the landscape. And so that... But, yeah, it's different from what people expect. Yeah, I, it's... um. You know, you you've got this kind of Hollywood version of Everest, and then then the reality. And this is why it's great. Um, great. This is why podcasts are great, isn't it? Because you can just get get to the truth. Is it? It plays into it. Sorry, just very briefly. Uh, a lot of the people who are after Everest as kind of the great the great achievement uh, assume that it's going to be very physical. And they can train for that. They can be strong and fit. And then there are going to be a whole lot of dramatic, manly risks that they can overcome and, and feel good about themselves. And, you know, none of that's wrong. Yes, you need to be fit. Yes, you need to be well-trained. And there might be some sort of manly risks to, to overcome. 
but there's a whole bunch of other crap that they don't think about. And it's this boring, in a situation of risk, but there's nothing you can do about it. In a situation of confusion, but there's no way of finding out what's going on. You're going to have to just wait. In a situation where you're pinned down and there is actually nothing sort of manly that you can do about it. You've just got to sit on your ass and see what happens. There's situations where no amount of being brave is going to fix it because it's about weather or it's about poor snow conditions. And actually, the most intelligent climbers are the ones who either stayed in camp or went back down the mountain and said, we'll try again when conditions improve. You can't kind of brave your way through some of this. Mm. The mountain is way bigger than you. The weather systems are way bigger than you. Uh, you can't overcome. You have to back off. You have to be patient. And a lot of ambitious people don't have the patience. They don't have the emotional self-control. And they end up falling apart emotionally in ways that aren't brave and aren't manly and don't make for good stories afterwards because it's kind of embarrassing. Mm -hmm. But it's the truth of it. A lot of the difficulty and a lot of the failure is emotional and internal. And it, you know, it's not what people thought they were signing up for. Yeah, my gosh. I mean, um, I think it was Ant Middleton. He's one of our TV celebrities, climbed Everest last year. And he he's uh, he's ex-military himself. And his frustration, he said, at some of the people, they didn't even understand the most basic climbing techniques. You're like, put your crampons on. But this was halfway the mountain where mistakes cost lives, obviously. Is that... Um... I, I would say, yeah, with the utmost respect to all the various British media celebrities who've climbed Everest in the last few years, there's a big difference as to whether you hired a guide or whether you went on your own account. Because again, people look at the mountain and see the physical challenge. And and then they look at other people and go, well, at least I know what I'm doing with my crampons. The, those people, you know, appear to have turned up on Everest not knowing what a crampon looks like. But the fact remains that both those people aren't making the decisions. The guide's making the decisions. Mm -hmm. So they've taken the entire skill aspect. And skill is not just how do you use crampons. Skill is looking at a mountain slope and going, is that avalanche prone? It's looking at a glacier and going, where are the hidden crevasses? It's going, where will the route go, given that slope is probably an avalanche slope, that slope probably has hidden crevasses? It's looking at the weather systems and going, is it safe to move on or move back? The guides are making all those choices. And that is a huge part of the skill of mountaineering. And if you outsource that, if you paid somebody else to do all your risk assessment and all your risk management, you've only done a fraction of the work of climbing a mountain. Um, uh, and that's why I think it's much more interesting to be the sort of climber who can do your own risk assessment, who doesn't hire guides uh, to climb mountains. Kathy, and, is it true that some people climb, they just arrive at Everest with no permit and they just do their own thing? I've, I've they call it like guerrilla climbing or something. 
Is that? Uh, I don't think you could get away with that on Everest. Um, it's firstly, in my opinion, it's deeply disrespectful to the people and to the country to assume that you have a right to move into somebody else's country and behave like that. Because these are not Nepalese climbers who decide that they should be able to do this. Then the classic routes on Everest, it's a fairly well-defined route. There will be other teams and there will be Sherpas on that route and they, they know who belongs to which team. Yeah. I've only known personally of one case where somebody tried to gorilla climb and the Sherpas you know, within a couple of hours had gone like, yeah, who's she? What team is she with? And within a few more hours, a few things had gone up and down on the radio and she was stopped and escorted back down the mountain. And I think she then got a 10-year ban from Nepal. Because you don't get to do that. Obviously, if you truly want to gorilla climb and you don't want to be stopped, go and climb straight up the North Face. You know, solo, alone on the North Face of Everest or the West Ridge or the Kanshung Face of Everest. But people don't want to do that because that's hard. There you'd actually have to be a climber who really knows what you're doing. So can you explain for our listeners? So the two main approaches to Everest are what, Tibet and Nepal? Uh, no, okay. So people, people see the photographs of the queue on Everest. There'll be a photograph, look for it late May 2020. Because, uh, so seasons. You can climb Everest any season of the year, but by far the best chance is May. Uh, and that's got to do with uh, the wind, these high-speed winds that whip around the world. There's a reason your aeroplane goes faster going generally west to east than east to west. You've got the winds with you or the winds against you. Those winds tear across the top part of Everest. And in northern spring, they tend to lift. So you may get a couple of days, a week or two, where the summit of Everest doesn't have any wind. Now, that's a huge advantage. So most people will try and go for the summit in late May. So first of all, we get a crowd in spring. You could go in winter, you could go in autumn, middle of summer, it's the monsoon, probably not a good idea, but you could if you wanted to. Uh, so the next question is what route? There are, I think, 14, maybe 15 different ways that Everest has been climbed. So you don't have to be in the queue. People are in the queue because it's the easiest. Yeah. And people are trying to say that they did something terribly difficult while attempting to find the easiest way to do it. Okay, no, fair enough. But you know, let's be honest, you don't have to be in the queue. You could have been on one of 15 different routes on Everest. Admittedly, some of them are so hard, no one's ever done them a second time. The other truth is you don't even have to follow somebody else's footsteps. There are at least two possibilities for routes on Everest that have not yet been climbed. So if you want to go Edmund Hillary style, be a complete pioneer, it's available. Wow. Two, those two routes are both on the east face of Everest, and you will be the only team there. There will be no queue. There will be nobody else. There'll be no fixed lines. But that's hard. Mm. So again, not that many people with the experience um, or, or the sheer chutzpah to, to yeah. try and climb well, one of those two routes. And that, that would cost 
more money, I'm guessing. To, no, it costs no. less money. Oh, really? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let me finish the roots quickly and then we'll talk money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what people think of as the classic roots are the two easiest roots. And easy becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because the more people have done them, the more we ha- information we have. So the two easy routes on Everest, you know, they're pretty much almost no meter by meter at this point. Whereas if you try and repeat one of these routes that's only been done once, you're going to have a lot less information to work with. Then, so these two easy routes, the one comes from the Chinese side, from Tibet, and that's essentially the North Ridge onto the North Face. And the other is the most popular. It's on the south side. It's the route that Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay did when the mountain was first climbed, um, up up the western, you know, through the icefall, up the western coom, up the Lhotse phase to the south col, and then up the ridge, the southeast ridge. And at this point, because it's heavily guided, they more or less put a fixed safety line from base camp to the summit. So you're not having to do any navigation. And that's why the queue is quite so obvious. Everyone's on the same safety line, clipped in one behind the other, shuffling up the line. And that line is a very useful safety technique, but it also removes a whole lot of the kind of the skill yeah. uh, required to, you know, to navigate the mountain. So next question is about money. The most expensive way to climb Everest is to be a paying client. It's far cheaper to be the sort of climber who has enough confidence and enough experience to mount your own expedition. Now, I'm, a little, I'm, not, I'm not 100% up on prices in 2020, uh, so I'm going to be a little, I'm going to generalize slightly. Yeah, that's, that's good. But so when I was on Everest, this route, the South Col route, the most popular route, cost $70,000 for a team of seven. So effectively $10,000 a person. Uh, And then if you go onto one of the other routes, it should be a little bit cheaper. So your permit is only max $10,000 a person. Yeah, I'm not quite sure if that holds in 2020, but it holds roughly. Hmm. The most expensive expedition offers, I think in 2020, the luxury one, aimed at the Asian luxury market, $130,000 a person. Uh, The one aimed at American executives, that's the rapid ascent offer for people who have more money than time, $85,000 a person. If you want to mount your own expedition, so you need to get some permit places, $10,000 a head, then, you know, you don't have to use oxygen. You don't have to have Sherpas. You're looking at your equipment, which you own, if you're a good enough climber to mount your own expedition. Your flights, food, you can put together an expedition for $20,000, No, it's not that this is something. It's expensive for the people who want to do it without experience. Because obviously, gaining experience costs you money. You spend years climbing other mountains, learning how to climb, you know, going into these situations, learning to cope, 
pulling back out, looking at what you learned, upping your level of skill, going back into the mountains. Obviously, all of that cost you money, but you do it because you love climbing. You do it because it was fun. So, but yeah, no, no, there's no reason to say that high Himalayan climbing is super expensive. That's for people who just want to pay for a shortcut. Okay. And how is it to be so near the top and, and to make the decision that you have to turn around? I actually don't think that that's desperately traumatic. But again, I think that that's how it feels like as a climber rather than as a client who's paid for a once in a lifetime, very expensive achievement. The point is, as a climber, backing off is a skill. Backing off is what you need to do. You never go onto a mountain going summit or bust, you know. Um, it is better to die than to fail to reach the top. That's just bollocks because you could well die. <laughs> no, that's the sort of nonsense that, that people put as their slogan on their website or something. Um, as a climber, weather changes, snow condition changes, your, your health changes, you get injured, somebody in your team has a problem. Backing off is absolutely part of your tool set. It's the thing you do. And it's a skill because there's no hard line and backing off isn't immediate. You know, if you're running a marathon, if you've had enough, sit down on the pavement, pull out your mobile phone and call a taxi. You can stop it like that. I've seen that. Um... You. <laughs> yeah, well, it's perfectly sensible. There's no point, you know, mm-hmm. uh, if you're having a truly atrocious time, stop and call a taxi. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But on the mountain, there's no calling the taxi. I mean, I guess in the Alps, you could just call a helicopter. And I know the helicopter, the rescue people get pretty pissed off if somebody just calls a helicopter because they're tired. Uh, but on, in the big mountains, there's no calling the helicopter. If you want to give up, you've got to climb all the way back down. So you need to give up while you still have enough mental and physical energy to get back down, which means you can't actually keep climbing until the point of collapse, because then how are you going to get down? You have to give up while you have an indefinable amount of energy, because you don't know what's going to go wrong on the way down either, particularly if you're giving up because you think the weather's unstable or because somebody in your team looks like they're getting ill. Now, you don't know how this is going to play out. You've got to turn around while you have enough to get down and enough in case something else goes wrong on the way down. That's why the whole process of giving up is actually quite an interesting exercise because it's a very gray area. When do you push on? When do you back off? So, no, I don't see backing off as a big failure or, or, frankly, as desperately traumatic because it's normally happening because you're in a complicated situation that now needs to be managed. And that has its own kind of interest. Hmm. Afterwards, sometimes you get home and you go like, damn it, I should have tried harder. But then you remember, you know, all the unknown variables you were trying to assess in the moment of giving up. And you go like, "Mm, no, okay. I came home with my fingers and my toes. It was probably a good choice. Is the ratio, you know, they always used to talk about this ratio of, how many people try and climb Everest and how many people die? 
has has that got worse or or better? No, do we know? Got better. So there are a couple of things, like all of these things, you have to dig down a bit. So they'll come up with this statistic. X number to the summit, X number died. Oh, my God, it's so dangerous. What they forget is the majority of people who tried don't actually get to the summit. You don't have to be one of the people who got to the summit to be in the death statistic. So actually, it's a much bigger number who tried and then this many were killed, which gives you a much less impressive statistic. Then the second thing is it's got safer, not more dangerous. The absolute number of deaths has gone up per year because the number of people trying has gone up exponentially. I mean, you should have a look at the graph. It no, took off in about it. the year took off in about the year two thousand. It's about flat from about nineteen fifty three, very slow increase to about two thousand, and then it just does this as it went commercial basically. So now it's safer. Fewer people die as a percentage of the people who try. And that's because it's guided. It's bad for business if your customers die. Uh, so the, the, the guiding and the fixed rope and, you know, all of this is actually making Everest safer to climb. How? how it's not true, just very briefly, it's not true that it's, it's the most inexperienced people who die. If you look at who's actually killed, there may be some people among the clients who probably went down with altitude sickness or something like that. Um, the other thing that sometimes happens, sometimes, just like with marathons, sometimes fit young men die because they actually have a heart defect or something mm. that they'd never have known about if they hadn't put their body under such acute stress. Uh, but but quite, you know, a fair number of the deaths are still actually very experienced climbers who haven't aren't there with a guide, aren't there with oxygens and sherpas, who are trying something considerably more pushy mm. and end up being unlucky or making a mistake or whatever it is. And, of course, there's been quite big avalanches that have made the news in recent years. Um I'm thinking on Everest. Everest. On Everest? Really? Yeah, there's was there a you know, I hate to use a cliche word, but like a monster avalanche that it 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 no. killed quite a few Sherpas. Um well, you know, the one big thing that happened, um, and I mean I don't follow every season closely or anything, so uh, but the one big thing that happened was the earthquake. Yeah, which so that's yeah. you know that's slightly separate. When you get an earthquake of that magnitude, of course it sets off avalanches uh, right across I, the Himalaya, yeah. and it happened during the Everest climbing season. So there were people on the mountain when those big avalanches came down. But th but that's something different. Yeah, I so mean, that's like a freak occurrence, exactly because of the the earthquake. Yeah, no, no, nobody can really add earthquakes into their risk planning. It's just yeah. And you're from Joburg, is that is that right? Uh, yes, so I'm a South African. I grew up in Johannesburg, but I left South Africa nearly 20 years ago now. And I live in a funny little place called Andorra in the Pyrenees Mountains. What made you settle there other than the obvious connection? Well, I never, I never sort of did a grand immigration from South Africa. When I left South Africa... I didn't know it was going to be for good, although it probably is. But I was driven essentially by two things. 
uh, under apartheid, I mean, I grew up under apartheid, we couldn't travel easily because there were sanctions against South Africa. So once all of that normalized, I wanted to, you know, get up and see the world, just go and, go and live somewhere else for a bit. But the other thing that was happening was I was already doing big Himalayan expeditions out of South Africa. And, and these big mountains, you know, even if we say you don't have to pay $100,000, it's still expensive. Most people are probably going to try and raise some kind of sponsorship. And so the first big Himalayan trip, it was three and a half South African rands to the dollar. And I think five years later, it was something like eight rands to the dollar. So I'm having to raise twice as much sponsorship mm. for the same cost of expedition. I mean, I could see the writing on the wall. This just wasn't going to be sustainable. So I wanted to go to Europe and try and earn some hard currency, <laughs> so, you know, try and make it a little more affordable. And uh, for, for reasons to do with passports and residence permission and, and not being the sort of South African who has convenient British grandparents, which gets me a British passport and that kind of thing. It was easier to move to Andorra, which is not a member of the European Union, than it was to move to, say, Spain or France. Uh, and I wanted the south of Europe. I wanted the sunshine of the south of Europe, and I wanted to live in the mountains. So it was always going to be the north of Italy or, or the Pyrenees Mountains. And so, yeah, it was Andorra. Once I got here, I was like, wow, this is great. It's got the sunshine of South Africa and the kind of laid-back living. Um, you know, South Africa is a kind of slightly disorganized country. It's a bit more like the south of Europe than like the north of Europe. Uh, but on the other hand, we've got snow, there's great rock climbing. I could ski, climb, alpine climb, rock climb. No, it's great. Yeah, I, I was in um, Johannesburg. Did you say you were there? You left 20 years ago? Yeah, so I left in about the year 2000, 2001. Yeah, I was there in 1999, so about a similar time. It was, it was an interesting interesting time after apartheid. Yeah, it's a fascinating, it's an amazing city, the, especially for someone of my generation because we grew up seeing it all on the news you know the townships and the um the, the protests riots um the the police who just i mean they it wasn't just that they didn't mess around it's like they couldn't i guess they you know they were really up against it and The South African police resorted to shotguns in the Johannesburg township of Kahiso today, trying to separate supporters of the ANC and the Zulu group in Carter. It was the 11th day of fighting. This might surprise people listening in this day and age, but the because of the tribal connection that the the black africans were protesting the police on the street with spears that was that's what we had on our news you know almost every night um fact i 
I met Hector Peterson's mother while I was mm-hmm. there. He was the he was a schoolboy that was shot in one of these riots, shot by the police, and it was kind of a seminal moment in. in there, a news photographer took a photograph of somebody. I think I'm remembering this correctly, of somebody walking down the street carrying Hector Peterson's body in his arms, and that photograph went around the world. So that that was kind of why that that moment became so um, so seminal. Uh, yes, it was a very complicated time, and it's part, I think, of why almost all my friends immigrated, because when I was a student, army service was compulsory for men, two years, and because the country was essentially in a low-level civil war, the police were not able to cope with this situation, and so they were sending the army into these black townships where there was a lot of civil unrest. So these young men who were in the army because they had to be, they hadn't signed up for this, they didn't believe in this system, were being forced into the townships to act like policemen and basically to turn their weapons on fellow South Africans with a different skin color. Mm. Uh, And so a lot of my friends, you could dodge the army if you stayed at university. And almost everyone I knew was doing multiple degrees while attempting to get a B-1 visa to the United States or find any way out of the country to avoid being conscripted into the army. So, yeah, almost everybody I knew, the men all left and then the women tended to leave as well. Gosh. Um, So, yeah, it was was an interesting time, but it was a thoroughly complicated time uh, to live in South Africa. Well, it's funny we should be talking about this because one of my supporters through my Patreon platform, there's a chap called Matt Cudmore, and he he wanted me to ask you, did you ever consider joining the military? And I guess you... Absolutely not. I mean, so one of the things that I found a little odd moving to Europe was uh, people being kind of proud of being in their military. I mean, I think the Americans are really overboard with the whole thank you for your service thing. Uh, it sort of fetishizes the military. Yeah. But yes, no, coming out of South Africa, you're like, yeah, no. The military, our military was a weapon of the apartheid government. And what would happen, um, this, is, this, is a, this is a massive generalization, but the fact remains that Afrikaners would often go straight into the military from school. English heritage South Africans often went to university first and then tried to dodge. Maybe, maybe, possibly just because the English, I knew we were all very liberal. And so the result is either, even if you got into the army, you were a mid, some mid-20s English guy with higher education being bossed around by an 18-year-old Afrikaner from the farm um, who supported apartheid. I think essentially because why wouldn't they? They didn't know anything about alternatives they didn't know much about how brutal apartheid was Uh, because a lot of it part of the way apartheid worked was to make sure that the whites didn't see the price blacks to play um so you weren't necessarily all that aware of the brutality of apartheid until you did something like serve in the army and get sent into the townships so no no, no, it's um, not look on the military as something to be admired at all. Yeah, it's it, it's just wonderful to hear 
such an honest take on it. There's, like you say, I, I, I'm, you know, I've said this before that all this thank you for your service, sir. It's just to legitimise war, and war doesn't suit people like us. It, it certainly doesn't suit impoverished communities around the world. Not even impoverished communities, if you, if we're talking about Iran now. It just serves a ruling elite who are made up of sick psychopaths and they don't care about you and me, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, um, yeah, very refreshing. So if we can go back to the mountain, um, how, how, yeah, that's, that's definitely refreshing. How does the, um, the mathematics work out with all these people in the queue? Is there a, I mean, do they all come up with their own cutoff times? Because how do they get past the Hillary step? Okay, so the first question person is, I don't have personal experience of this. I've been to the summit of Everest twice. I've been on the mountain four times for various reasons. But both times, my team was the only team above high camp. So my, and, and we didn't put in fixed lines. We soloed to the, to the top. So my experience of Everest is, is kind of the old-fashioned climber experience. You're the only team up there. You're not, you're, not, you're not clipped into a fixed line. You're climbing solo, you know, using an ice axe. So uh, I'm not the person to talk about kind of um, crowd management in, in the modern age. But I do think visiting cutoff times is an interesting thing because this is, again, because of John Krakauer's book, become kind of mythologized as there's this mythical time and god forbid you should be on you know keep going up one minute past the mythical moment 2 p.m or 3 p.m because presumably going to turn into a pumpkin or something <sighs> this is this is a way that clients that guides manage clients paying large amounts of money because your problem is a guide and i am simplifying for the, for the listeners who are professional guides, but the fact remains, your problem as a guide is here you have a client who paid you a very large check, $85,000 check, $130,000 check. And there, this guy turns out that he had a lot of money, but he's not as fit as he thought he was. He's not doing terribly well. He's way too slow. And you know you're not going to get to the summit in time, or at least he's not going to be able to get back down. If you keep pushing him to the summit, he's going to collapse, and then you, the guide, are going to be stuck with a dead weight of dying client that you somehow have to save his life uh, because his family will sue you if if he doesn't make it back down. How So you turn around to this guy and say, you're not good enough. And the guy says, I paid you $130,000. I want the summit now. And the answer is, you're too slow. You're not good enough. You didn't do enough training. That's a hard argument. It's much easier to point to your watch and go three o'clock. When you signed up to my expedition, you signed a whole set of clauses, which include a summer day cutoff time of three o'clock. It's like, oh, the mythical three o'clock. Mm -hmm. The truth is, as climbers, there is no mythical time. There is no pumpkin moment. There is simply a shifting situation. So possibly 
you climbed fast and and fit and like us got to the summit at eight o'clock in the morning and were back at camp by three o'clock in the afternoon. That's the ideal scenario. But possibly something went wrong, which you then solved. And it hasn't impeded your ability to keep climbing. And for whatever reason, you know, maybe the weather was bad at night, so you waited and the weather cleared and then you kept climbing. It's perfectly possible to be on the mountain at three o'clock in the afternoon and go like, no, this is perfectly safe. We still have energy. The weather's okay. We'll finish. You know, okay, so you're going to come down in the dark. Well, the normal protocol is to start in the dark. You normally start at midnight. If you're going to go up in the dark, you can come down in the dark. Mm-hmm. You know? So um, a cutoff time isn't generally used in non-commercial groups because sometimes the cutoff time is too late. If the weather's getting bad, Maybe you shouldn't wait until three o'clock to turn around and say it's not going to work. That's a storm front and we need to get back down to base camp before these winds get any stronger or whatever it is, back, back down to the top camp. Uh, you, you can't say that you know, 3 p.m. is somehow you know, something special. It isn't. Mm-hmm. What you've got to be doing is doing a constant reassessment. They're basically hour by hour. Have conditions changed? Does that mean that our plan should change? Yes, no. Onwards, backwards. And, and that, that's a discussion internally and within your group that you should be having literally on an ongoing basis. Have you, um, I saw one of your videos, you talked about an emergency bivouac. Um, we'll pronounce the name of this mountain. Is it Na- Na- Nanja Parbat? Nanga Parbat. Nanga Parbat. And was that two of your team that had to, was that the two summiters that bivied out or was that all all of you? Oh, uh, well, that's a much more complicated, much more difficult expedition uh, than Everest. So uh, very briefly, Nanga Parbat is one of the 8,000 meter peaks. Uh, I think it's the ninth highest in the world. It's in Pakistan. And we were attempting to climb a route that had never been done before. Uh, so sections of the, of the climb had been done. So it's not completely, you know, unknown ground. But the fact is no one had ever managed to climb Nanga Parbat via that route. And there'd been quite a lot of failures. People had tried. So this is very different. This isn't Everest or, or the South Col route on Everest where you know the route meter by meter. This is much more standing on the mountainside going like, uh, which way should we go in order to get to a place we can see in the far distance? Uh, and then the other thing about this expedition was it was alpine style. So alpine style means no fixed ropes, no fixed camps, no going up and down. Mm. Once you've acclimatized, you pack a rucksack in which you're carrying the entire trip worth of food and gas. You need gas because no, no liquid water. You're going to have to melt snow to get drinking water. So you're carrying an incredibly heavy rucksack and that's it. There's no resupply. So if you run out of food, you run out of food. If you run out of gas, there's no more drinking water. You know, it's a much more committing way to climb. You must have a massive weight of equipment as well. Yeah, there's a reason why I've never tried anything that hard again. <laughs> um, I know, I, but seriously, mm. carrying loads that heavy damages your back. I think 
anyone who's done their years in the military must know that one. And, you know, I don't have the kind of training I guess you guys have. No, I mean, one of the reasons why I don't want to do another expedition of the degree of kind of, um, what's the word, a commitment, total commitment of something like the Mazeno Ridge of Nangaparbat is just, I don't feel I'm strong enough to carry those loads anymore. And I don't want to run those risks of, of carrying lifelong injury. Um, I'd rather live to climb the next mountain, you know. I'd rather climb uninjured and climb 90 than, yeah. you know, give everything to any one particular undertaking. So, anyways, so that's the context of, of, of the Mazeno Ridge. It's a very different kind of climb. And we were a team of six. Uh, we had one unplanned night out, all, all six of us, um, because we'd made a choice that turned out badly. And we didn't manage to get to a place where we could actually dig in a camp. Again, you don't know where the next campsite's going to be. We've got these incredibly small tents, but you can't pitch a tent on a slope like this. You know, there's a point where it doesn't work. Um, and then we made one attempt at the summit. Our plan was 10 days. We're carrying 10 days of food. We made our summit attempt on day 11. We've still got to get down, remember. So we've now, we're now like three days beyond what was supposed to be the plan. The plan was hopelessly optimistic. Day 11, we make a summit attempt and fail. And at that point, four of us, myself included, were like, uh uh, we've got two biscuits and an energy bar left and two days of climbing. Because we were doing a traverse, we were going down a route we'd never seen before. Again, that's a lot different to just going back the way you came. So we're still, in a sense, going forward, even though we're going wow. down. It's unknown ground. So, so you know, much. The descent is much more committing. You've got to leave a lot more capacity. And yeah, we're down to two biscuits and an energy bar. It's like, yeah, no, we're trying, we're out. And four of us, myself included, went down. And two guys who are just phenomenally good climbers, Sandy Allen and Rick Allen, decided to try again. And they actually dumped the tent. So they would, they were sleeping in holes in the snow by choice to lighten their rucksacks. Um, and they went on and had an utterly epic time. They lived. Rick Allen had to have a couple of toes amputated. They spent 18 days on the mountain on what was supposed to be a 10-day plan. And they won a peer-led to awe, and Sandy Allen wrote an amazing book, well worth re re reading, called uh, In Some Lost Place. Um, yeah, very, very different from the cues on Everest. I, I should just point out, and I'll... I'll put the link to your book in the description, but I bought your book today. Um, I'm looking forward very much to reading it and possibly we can meet because I gather you're coming to my neck of the woods. So I'm in Plymouth, but you're speaking in Exeter, is that? Yes. So the way I make a living and the way I pay for most of these trips, because mostly you don't get sponsorship. Mostly you save up and then you spend the money going climbing or skiing or whatever it is. Uh, I'm a motivational speaker. I use my Himalayan experiences to talk to big corporations about project management and team leadership and, and you know, overcoming obstacles and that kind of thing. But every so often I get to do some talks to the general public. And via a company called Speakers from the Edge, I'm doing a lecture tour around the UK uh, late April, 
into early May, 27 April to 13 May, 13 venues around the UK, and one of them is close to you. I'm afraid I don't remember all the different venues. No, it's okay. Uh, but, but, there is, but there is a website where it's all listed out, and those are going to be kind of a life story talk. So I'm going to be talking about Everest 96 and my different attempts on Everest. I'm going to be talking about the Mazeno Ridge of Nanga Parvat and what it's like to try and do a new route alpine style. And, and then as well, various of the other expeditions I've done over the years, what I hope to be doing later this year. And then how I've managed to pay for all of this, which is you know, a thoroughly interesting question. Like, how do you actually get the time off and find the money and, you know, manage to still kind of have a reasonably stable life financially um, to do all of this? That's the bit I think I'm going to be the most fascinated in because, yeah, I'm, my, my bucket list, I make a, you know, I'm always making a new bucket list. And well, the more things you kind of achieve in life the the more expensive the next one gets and um yeah so my next uh adventures are it'd be nice if somebody else paid some money towards them for me because like yourself i've you know i spend out of my own pocket and it and it, it, it yeah it costs a lot <laughs> can, can i just make a point for anybody who's listening to this who is a mountain climber and is going like hell no i don't have $85,000, I don't even have, you know, $20,000 to spend on, on a project. There are grants. Now, there are limitations, but if you're based in the UK, there's actually a remarkably good system of grants. And they're not going to pay for you to be in the queue on Everest because that is in no sense pioneering. But what they will do is they'll support training to build the skills so you can do it yourself and not pay a guide. And they will support expeditions which are exploratory. And that doesn't have to be at a really high level. You know, I know quite a lot of people in the last couple of years who've been going into the Stans, um, Kazakhstan, Kajikistan, Tajikistan. You know, um, and there's still quite a lot of valleys and mountains in those countries that, as far as records show, have never been explored. Mm. So it doesn't have to be technically super difficult. But you will get financial support from the Mount Everest Foundation. That's the biggest one in the UK. But also from various of the clubs, the Alpine Club, the Eagle Ski Club, the Austrian Alpine Club, UK branch, uh, and then various others. They all have grants, particularly for younger people building skills, and then for anyone who's prepared to put together a relatively exploratory expedition. There is money. Don't look at Everest and assume that that's the only model to go mountain climbing. But you're going to have to step away from the bucket list. I'm not, I don't mean you specifically, but people are going to have to stop thinking that Everest and the seven summits are somehow the pinnacle of achievement in mountaineering. It yeah, isn't. Sure. That's the commercial offer. There are thousands of mountains in the world. There are thousands of mountains in the world that have never been climbed. And if you're prepared to put a little bit of effort into looking at those, then there's money available to support you. That is great advice. So, Kathy, I'm aware of your um, valuable time. I, I've got some um, two questions here again from my team. But mm -hmm. be before that, can you just describe for us that that moment when you 
you realize you've got five steps left and and you're on the peak you know the top of everest how 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 does well, the best moment wasn't was before then so you're right in saying the best moment isn't actually the summit because it's this thing about you don't get to just pull out your phone and call a taxi you're going to have to climb back down so as soon as you get to the top you start to worry about the descent which is going to be long and very tiring and you're already tired uh the thing about Everest is you get to base camp and you can see a lot of the mountain, but you can't see the final ridge. And the final ridge is very famous. It's the famous knife edge and it's the famous rock feature, which isn't actually entirely there anymore so after the earthquake. But for, for decades, it's been the famous feature that is the Hillary step. Mm. There's the last piece of technical climbing on this knife edge ridge is this rock step that you have to overcome. And the thing is, people turn up at base camp and they're already going like, what's your strategy for the Hillary step? The answer is, for God's sake, maybe you should try getting there first. If you, <laughs> you can worry about it when you get there. Hmm. Um, and that's kind of how I felt about it. I got onto my first Everest team as a token woman brought in at the last minute by what the newspaper sponsor to frankly sex up the coverage. So I didn't turn up expecting to get to the summit. And nobody else assumed that, you know, I was one of the climbers who'd be in the summit team, so to speak. But I was. And even on the summit day, I still haven't seen this knife edge ridge. I still haven't actually seen the Hillary step. So I still not, don't know if I'm a good enough climber to finish. Now, you know, failure is always a possibility right up until the last minute. And you've got to be realistic about that. So you leave at midnight, through the night, eventually the sun rises, thank God. Now you're climbing in the early light of the morning, heading for the south summit. And I think on that expedition, eight o'clock is when I got onto the south summit. And for the first time, I could see the ridge. And I stood there at 8 a.m. on top of the south summit, looked at that snow line, looked at the Hillary Step, I'm a rock climber. I've always been a rock climber. And I've done mountaineering around the world. I've just never been nearly as high as Everest. And I looked at that ridge and I thought, I can climb that. That's fine. And remembering we're climbing solo. We're not, we're not putting safety ropes up. I looked at that ridge and I thought, oh, that's fine. I can do that. And it was that moment. And that feeling, that feeling of confidence when I went like, oh, yeah, no, no, I'm good enough for that. And then I could look beyond the Hillary step, beyond the, the most narrow part, to the summit in the far distance. Still two hours of climbing to get there. And for the first time, I thought, yes, I'm going to get to the summit of Everest. Oh, <laughs> and I, that I, was I, the moment. It just felt amazing. Yeah, it, it's beyond, beyond words. Um, so we've got uh, Andy, Andy here, Andy Coombs, just wanted to congratulate you 
and thank you for talking to us today. Um, and just one last question again from Matt. H how have you had that moment when you felt like quitting? And how, if so, how did you deal with that, Kathy? Of course I have. Uh, and I think it, it comes back to this point. There's nothing wrong with deciding to quit. So when we kind of, you know, in the self-helpy jargon, uh, we tend to assume that wanting to quit is a weakness that must be overcome. No, sometimes it's valid information. And in fact, one of the challenges as a climber is to tell the difference. When is the, I want to quit feeling because you just don't want to put the work in that's required to get to some, a place where you, you could go, you should go, you're good enough to go, but you're going to have to knuckle down and work much harder than you'd hoped to get there. Mm -hmm. So that's one feeling. And there are various strategies you can use to try and motivate yourself and keep focused. And I think one key one is understand why you really want to get that goal. Sometimes we kind of lie to ourselves. We hope the goal is going to solve problems and it isn't because the problem and the goal aren't actually related to each other. So if you're kind of lying to yourself a little bit about why you want the goal, that can make it very hard to put the work in. Um, but if, you're, if you've had an honest discussion with yourself and you really know why you want this goal, go back to that place. The other thing is a team. Yeah, honestly, when you really, really can't remember why you wanted this goal, it helps to look at your teammates and go like, why are we here again? And if they can, particularly if they can crack a joke, if they can just break the stress with a little bit of humor, that can make a huge difference. If you feel you're not in this alone, you can kind of ask somebody else to carry your motivation for a bit. And then later on, when you're back on your feet, emotionally speaking, you can swap that over. That's why, that's why it's a team sport for me. Um, I'm not one who wants to particularly wants to be solo in the mountains. I get a lot out of being able to look at my teammate and, and share the choices and the worries and the motivation and the joy of it with them. But sometimes that feeling that I want to give up is because you should. It's because the weather's bad and the snow's unstable and you're, you really are reaching some kind of physical limit or some kind of mental limit. And you should listen to that voice. I don't like the way we kind of demonize failure in, in sort of our modern self-help environment. Sometimes knowing when to quit, one of life's great skills. And a valuable, um, it provides a valuable learning lesson, right? Yeah. Well, it's just, you know, the, the thing is, if you're not prepared to quit, then you're not prepared to try. Because then you have to be 100% sure that you can achieve the project. And most of the interesting things in life, we try them without knowing quite if we're good enough. And then with luck, we'll learn the skills we need on the way. So I think going into it with a learning mindset and, and then also not attaching your ego to the outcome. So hopefully you'll learn the skills you need as you go. But you might learn that you didn't, don't like this or it's too much or it is actually too difficult this time around. Maybe another time, maybe never. Maybe you try mountain climbing and go like, hell no, I'm going to go sailing next time. <laughs> you know, whatever it is. Um, so 
I don't need, it's not necessarily about overcoming. It's about learning. And walking away is part of learning. Don't beat yourself up over failure. Look at it as having curiosity, learning stuff. And then you're a little bit better informed when you get really curious about the next project. Brilliant. Wonderful advice, Kathy. Can I just, we normally finish on three short questions. Uh, and they are, who, uh, do you have a most inspirational book, film, and person? Or, or something along those lines? No. <laughs> this, this sort of question, it, just, it doesn't work for me. There are so many good books in the world. Why would you pick one? It's about that moment in your life and where you are and what you're looking for and uh, what speaks to you. Um, so I've never, I've never been able to like pick one of any, any of these sorts of things. I, it's, I've always been more interested in just being curious about what, what the, the next thing might be. But, I mean, if people want a recommendation of an amazing book to read, uh, one of the great classic, Maurice Herzog, and this was the first... Uh, this was the first 8,000-meter mountain to ever be climbed, Annapurna. And I think they were a French team. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure they were a French team. And he wrote the most extraordinary book about that expedition. And that's, you know, in the truly pioneering sense of going and climbing a mountain. So, yeah, that is well worth reading. No, oh, thank you. Do you have a favorite film or, or, or what? what? What would you watch if you could pick one for tonight? Oh, yes, all right. Uh, so my, my film recommendation for mountaineering is Miru, M-E-R-U. And again, yeah, so it's not Everest. It's much more inspiring than Everest. Uh, this was done fairly recently in the last decade. And uh, three guys doing a new route on Miru, filming themselves as they went. And two of them professional cinematographers, mountain cinematographers. Mm. So one of the things I love is you, you can see the guy, Bilang, holding the safety rope, but he's filming at the same time. And then something happens to his lead camera and he just drops the camera because he needs to grab the safety rope. And so often the filming of mountain climbing is kind of lame because it's like, here we are in this desperate situation with a film crew sitting right next to us. You know, how did the film crew get there if it's so bloody desperate? Good question. You know, a lot of film is slightly contrived. Mm. But Miru, the climbers are doing the filming and you can see it. And they're brilliant. Brilliant climbing, brilliant filming. So Miru. Yeah, I think I, 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 not, I don't think I've seen it, but I saw the making of it. I think it's a high definition film. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, Kathy, can't thank you enough for coming on the Bought the T-Shirt podcast um like i say hope to see you in exeter and uh wish you all the best in your future endeavors thank you it's been an absolute pleasure friends thank you for listening to the bought the t-shirt podcast please like subscribe and share and don't forget to follow me on social media username chris Thrall. instagram chris Doctoral. Thank you.